In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, welcome to the table. I'm Father Spencer, one of the co-rectors here. And today we proclaim the good news that in Christ we meet the God who saves by serving, who leads by loving. Christ is freeing us from a life where we are over and against one another. And he's calling us into a life of communion where, in the image of the divine, we belong to each other. Our Old Testament passage in Job starts off with God speaking out of the whirlwind to Job. God speaks and says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? What did I lay the foundations of the world on? Surely you know. Basically, God seems to be communicating, Who do you think you are to question me? Just beyond the end of our text for this morning, it goes on, God goes on to ask the question, Who shut the sea in its doors? Who sets its boundaries? Who says to the sea, Thus far you shall come, and no farther, and here your proud waves shall be stopped? This God that we hear speaking in Job can easily seem distant, disinterested in Job's suffering and all that he's gone through. This God can seem demanding, and if we're honest, a bit demeaning. This all, of course, sounds very spiritual, depending on the logic of the spiritual language that you grew up hearing. I know that personally I have heard God's voice speak to me in this way, because this is a way that I was raised and formed. It sounds very spiritual and beyond question. Until you start to ask some questions here. So that little bit that was outside of our passage for this morning, where God says, who says to the ocean, here are your boundaries. You can come thus far and no farther. What are we to make of oceans with moving boundaries, of melting ice caps? What about the destruction that the ocean is capable of? Are we forced to only reckon with the good of what God says he can do? Or are we forced to be quiet and submit when we have questions, when we're suffering? Once again, I think we're all too familiar with a God who seems distant and disinterested, demanding and demeaning. But this is objectively in tension with God's character in several different parts of Scripture. So why is it that even though this is in tension with the God that we meet throughout the full arc of Scripture, that this, this character of God, this shape of God's tone of voice in speaking to us, is so easy for us to pick up and hold on to and cling to? I believe that it's because many of us have been raised theologically with this view of God. We've been taught that Jesus comes to save you from the wrath of the Father. So if it weren't for Jesus, God would have no choice. In a way, we pit Jesus and God against each other. And so we're shaped into needing to do whatever we can to save ourselves from God's anger. I don't have time to unpack all of it this morning, but I do think that there's something to the way that we often gender God as well in this. A lot of us have been formed in a patriarchal society where there's an inherent hierarchy to the patriarchy. And so when we think of God as Father, it's complicated, for sure. And for a lot of us, it's really painful. It's not always a beautiful image to think of God as a Father. We often believe that we have to do something to warrant God's attention, that we have to do something to get His approval, His acceptance. And when we believe that, we don't really have time to care about the needs or the wants or the hurts of others around us. Because I barely have time to take care of myself. I have to make sure that I'm posturing in the right way, that I'm, I'm walking the line, that I'm associating with power in the exact right way. Or else, as Bruce Almighty says, I might get smited by the Almighty Smiter. 
This approach to spirituality discourages asking questions and being curious. In fact, it frames doubts as a violation of trust, as if you're the one violating the relationship just to have questions. You can almost feel the shame ramping up to try to overcome any lack of faith. But church, today we proclaim the good news that in Christ we meet the God who saves us by serving, who leads us by loving us. Christ today is freeing us from a life where we are pitted over and against one another. And he's leading us into a life of communion where in the image of the divine, in the image of our creator, we belong to each other. In Mark, you can see James and John operating with this same logic, this same view of God and power that we could pick up from the Job passage, right? They get a moment where they can pull Jesus aside, and they've got a plan. They know what to do here. Jesus, we want you to give us what we ask for. Seems like a bold move to go that way, but okay, we see what's happening. And they say, we want to sit at your right and at your left hand. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Of course, they said, we are able. Jesus goes on, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized you will also be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. When the other disciples hear what James and John are up to here, they're furious. And Jesus, as he often does, takes this as an opportunity to teach. I think the disciples were angry because they know exactly what's going on. They got their moment to pull Jesus aside. Everybody is operating in the same logic and systems of power here, right? They all would like to sit at Jesus' right and left hand in eternity. And so they're mad that somebody else did it. Although I'm not 100% sure that they wouldn't like to have done the same thing. And Jesus turns to them and he says, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must first become your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus isn't just giving us a new strategy for how to acquire or sidle up to power. He's completely reframing what power and greatness even is and what it looks like. Here we have God incarnate, God in the flesh, saying that he came not to be served, but to serve. Hebrews goes on to double down on this by talking about what it means to be a priest and by then likening Jesus to that and saying Jesus is the high priest for all of us. It says that he's able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself was subject to weakness because he became man, because he suffered with us. Jesus is a high priest on our behalf today, forever. He suffers with us. He joins into that suffering with us. He's not far off. He's not the avenue through which a a disinterested God who's way off in the distance learns to not kill us. But that is the embodiment of God is in Jesus, is what we see there, coming down and suffering with us. I had a a great parenting moment yesterday, and so naturally I'm going to talk about it in my sermon because they, they can be few and far between, but every now and then they do happen. But Remy was coming up our back steps yesterday, and he tripped and hit his shin right on the edge of the step, which I think we've all have done this before. It's like the worst. Your bone is right there by the layer of skin. 
We've all have scraped that either on a ladder, God forbid, that's even worse, but on these wooden steps in our backyard. And instantly, you know, with that three-year-old panic and reaction that he had, he started to just be frantic and cry. And in that moment, I think because we were just in the middle of kind of a slow day together, we weren't in a rush to get somewhere, to get anything accomplished. I was right there present with him. Immediately, I just grabbed him in my arms, and right away I said, I know, that hurts, that hurts, that hurts, buddy. I didn't have to explain to him what happened. I didn't have to teach him how to go up the stairs the next time. I didn't have to, he didn't have to get me to be interested in his pain. But because I have been there, I've been in that moment, I knew how to hold him. I knew how to just say, I know what you're feeling. And in that moment, I felt that I had a picture of how Jesus is our high priest, how he suffers with us. We talked about that a bit last week as well, how God became incarnate, how God became flesh and showed us a totally different way of being present in the world and going through life, a different way of being human, human, humid. Christ, as our high priest, is able to deal gently with us in our ignorance and our waywardness because he himself became subject to weakness. Hebrews goes on to say that in this way, Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but he was appointed by God. I think it's interesting the way that we often inherently start to assume the way that the Trinity works, which is always, uh, you're always in trouble, like if you're about to just get really concrete about that. So basically what we say each week in the Creed is like, as comfortable as I am, like laying it out there. But I do think that we, when we read things like this, it's easy just to like see, see this the way that we see any other book that we read, right? Christ didn't glorify himself, but God chose him. Well, God is Christ kind of here too, so what exactly is going on? And I think that in that, we also have an image of the way that we are called to live, where we're not supposed to be grasping at power, we're not supposed to be saving seats to the right or the left of Jesus in eternity, but that in that flow of mutuality and caring for one another and living together, we don't seek to rank ourselves above the people next to us. We don't have to compete, we don't have to fight to make sure that we have enough to get by or that we are in the seat of power, but we can in mutuality live in self-care and in care for others. I'm reminded as I was preparing this week uh, of a quote that Brian Zond often says, God is just like Jesus. He's always been like Jesus. We haven't always known that he was, but now we do know that he is. God is just like Jesus, church. Jesus is the interpretive key through which we interpret and read all of scriptures. So this is like when you were growing up and you would get a code and it would tell you one letter is this symbol. Then you try to fill out and guess the rest of the letters in the alphabet and you fill in the code. But whenever the words start to not make sense, when they don't spell out an actual word, you know you've got some of the letters wrong. You don't have the right code broken. But no matter what, no matter how many times you get it wrong, you can always go back to the key, the letters that you were given. And Jesus is that key. So when we look at this text in Job, and we see a God who seems far off and disinterested, maybe he's speaking to us in a way that's demeaning and makes us feel belittled and unloved and uncared for. We can look at Jesus and the way that he's dealing with the disciples here, the way that Jesus walked around and cared for people and laid hands on the sick and ate with those who were outcasts. And we can go back to our interpretive key and see the truth of who God is in the flesh. There's still plenty of mystery out there. But the good news is that God is just like Jesus. 
And he's always been just like Jesus. Jesus is the interpretive key to Job in all of Scripture. In Christ, we meet the outward-flowing triune God in the flesh. And when we learn that God is just like Jesus, we're given a totally different imagination for how to orient ourselves to power and around what to do with power. Because when we see God as a distant deity, far off in the heavens in his kingdom, barely having time to look down upon us peasants, us mere mortals, then we have only one instinct for how to orient ourselves to power. We have to do whatever we can to get as close to that as we can, to save ourselves from not having enough. We have to compete that we can make it so that we can be closer to that seat of power. But when we see that God is like Jesus, when we can see Jesus giving power away and fighting against the power of the systems of evil of his day, we have a totally different imagination of how to go through this world, how to orient ourselves around power and what to do with power and privilege when we do have it. All of this makes sense knowing that we are made of the, in the image of the triune God. We were made for and to belong to one another. Belonging to one another empowers us to ask for help. We don't have to posture. We don't have to pretend that we have it all together. Belonging to one another empowers us not to run ourselves into the ground. We're not forced to prove our worth to God so that he'll accept us. We don't have to prove our worth in a community, our value, the things that we're good at serving at, or how quick we are to volunteer to be accepted. We are free to come in all of who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses. Part of belonging to each other is that we can't turn an eye from injustice, whether it impacts us or not. God is calling us as a church here at the table. For the last year and a half or two years, we've been taking a really hard look at what it means to activate as a community on a communal level for justice in our midst, whether that means politically or just activating in our community. And we're learning a lot from other people, but we, are still, we still have so much to learn. But one thing we are deeply convicted of is that we no longer can turn a blind eye to suffering and injustice going on around us because we not only belong to each other here in our midst at the table, not only to our friends and our family, but to our community, to everybody, to humanity. We were created in the image of the triune God. When we belong to each other and when we learn how to belong to each other, we're free to serve each other, not to get ahead or not to seek promotion by how good or how willing we are to serve, but because we belong to and are part of one another. I see that this, the church is already living that out here at the table in the way that prayer requests flow into the group me. People are very open and free to ask for help. I'm sure that there's still, there's probably people like me that it doesn't come as naturally to to reach out and ask for a prayer, a prayer request here and there. But here, especially in this season, coming out of COVID, when we had a time when none of us are at our, our mental health peak, let's say, we all need help. We all are struggling and suffering in different ways. Another way that we are trying to actively practice belonging to one another and living into this community life is that Ryan Donahoe is putting together a library of things where we're going to try to foster an imagination for how we can be a community where we don't all have to own leaf blowers, but maybe there's just like a couple and we can share them. And maybe not just with the people in the church, but with our neighbors and our community where we don't each have to go out and buy a lawnmower and a leaf blower and a weed eater. These are all yard things. 
There's probably other stuff that's going to be on there. But I, I really hate yard work. <laughs> other ways that we're trying to, as a church, belong to one another is by partnering with other ministries instead of worrying about just building our own brand here. We're not trying to take over the city of Indianapolis for the kingdom, but we're trying to learn from people and we're trying to give generously to other communities too and to be open-handed. It can be a little bit awkward when you uh, are putting down these agendas, when you meet with other people and all that they've ever known is agendas, right? And you have a lunch and you're just getting to know them. How are you? And you can almost see the power games going on beneath the surface. And it happens in church just as much as in any other aspect of life. But part of how we're called to be a counterculture and a counter community is just to go into those things open-handed and open-hearted. And just to be who we are, not posturing for power. Church, God is calling us today out of power over and into participation with. He's calling us out of competition and he's calling us into communion. Today we proclaim the good news that in Christ we meet the God who saves us by serving, who leads us by loving us. Christ is freeing us from a life where we are pitted over and against one another and he's calling us into a life of true communion in the image of our divine creator where we belong to one another. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.